0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Coram Deo Church and Pastor Chris Emmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today, we're talking about when the therapeutic replaces sin. We'll get to that topic in a second. Wow, can't wait. But first, I want to read you guys two... Actual real things that came across my email this week that are going to discourage you. They have to do with technology. Here you go. The title of this article at Entertainment Weekly is finally a video game that lets you play as Jesus Christ. The article says, Jesus Christ has risen today in a video game. Oh, and you are Jesus Christ.
1: I Finally. Am Jesus
0: Christ, the world's first Jesus simulator, allows gamers to slip into the sandals of a godlike Christian prophet and act out the New Testament's greatest hits. As Jesus, players can use telekinesis to enhance their carpentry skills, charge up their Holy Spirit energy to perform miracles,
1: oh my oh my invigorate energy. a wedding
0: reception by turning water into wine, teleport inside a sick child's bloodstream for healing, and avoid a ball of hellfire that is Satan in the desert. A prologue of the game will be available to play on stream starting December first. The prologue is basically a free, shortened version of the game that takes place in ancient Nazareth. The full version of the game will be available sometime in the first quarter of 2023. Guys, Chris, finally, you can be holy like that. Oh guys. My you
1: can be a gamer like Jesus. If I believed in a rapture, I'd be asking for it to happen right now. I'm just, I'm out. Does it I'm say done. Anything
2: about being able to like beat up dudes
0: <laughs> yeah it like well, the fight with satan the fight with well, sure. the wilderness, or, or like a like Charged a throwdown in the temple
1: or like yeah. beating people up and throwing them out of Level the temple 10. You can play
0: on december 1st and let us know what it's like chris here's the second one this it gets worse i got this email
1: it gets worse, it gets worse. It gets worse. i
0: got this email from a reputable uh pastoral sort of network uh it wants me to come to this conference the email says, God is moving in the metaverse. Why not join him? All right. They're inviting me to hear this metaverse expert who's written a book. Here's the bio of this guy. Jeff is a leading expert in digital evangelism and discipleship. He helps churches and individuals find their callings through digital discipleship, releasing digital missionaries, and planting multiplying digital churches. I just want to say I don't know what a multiplying digital church is. Wow. I don't know what a digital missionary is. I don't know what digital discipleship
1: is. You think Acts twenty nine will have digital church planning assessment? Like I think this means like a guy digital, that digital church planner in his
0: basement and interacts with people on the internet, which I like. I you know I think you know the the got questions people you know the, the eight hundred got questions or you know. The people in the Muslim world, they're like, hey, you can text in a question about God. I think there really is a role for some kind of digital evangelism if it's like answering people's questions. But we're talking about the metaverse here, and we're talking about planting, multiplying digital churches. I am not going to go to this conference (laughs) if I'm thinking (laughs) on my feet, nor do I think God is moving in the metaverse. Next time I'm not
2: at church and you're like, hey, where were you? I'm just going to be like, oh, I went to church in the metaverse. That's... I
0: planted planted a new church in the meta it's coming for all y'all the metaverse is coming for all
1: y'all you cannot you cannot take the sacraments in the metaverse (laughs) which shuts just shuts the whole conversation down like it's just over it's over no debate
0: now we need to get to our real topic for those were literally just two news briefs i wanted to give you guys of like hey here's what i saw this week this is the world you just got chris's blood boiling He's ready. I mean, I'm mean, the, i ready. The, the, Good warm-up. The speed with which evangelical Christians are diving in on the metaverse without any critique of the technological reality behind it is fascinating to me. In fact, I didn't read you a line from that. I want, I need, I want you to find this line in the email. It says, whether we are ready for it or not, the lost Jesus speaks of in Luke 19.10 are gathering in the metaverse. Yeah, they are, but they're also down the street from you. Like it's the same the same person same, in the metaverse is actually a real person in real life who you could just go reach with the gospel. Um All right. The wheels sorry. are off. <clears throat> the wheels are off. It's a little I just when I find stuff like that, I want to I want Christians on the podcast to know, hey, here's what's coming down the pike. Now let's get to the main topic of this podcast, when the therapeutic replaces sin. The title is from a book review by Samuel James which originally appeared at Digital Liturgies and then was reposted at Mere Orthodoxy, uh, I thought it was a really good critical book review. And I think Samuel James is trying to enter in an important conversation here. And here's what I've noticed. in the Book reviews used to be a good way for Christians to hash through an idea. I think that's how a book review is intended to work, is someone puts forward a thesis, there's some critique and pushback, and all of that helps us become better thinkers. I think it's getting weird where... If you have a critical review of a book, it's almost like now we're starting a fight or an argument about (laughs) are you right or wrong in your review. And that's that's kind of what I see going on here. I think the review that the, the critique that Samuel James makes of Chuck DeGroat's book When Narcissism Comes to Church is an important critique. And I want to read the critique and invite you to listen in. Let me read the intro paragraph or two of Samuel James's review, because I think actually the way he starts this made my skin, I was like, oh, I'm already feeling anxious just by reading this. Here's the beginning of his review. Imagine the following scenario. You're approached by two people in your church, both people that you love, know, and trust with equal measure. Person A needs to tell you something about person B. Person B, according to person A, has been spiritually abusing them. Person B has been using their leadership and influence to convince other people that person A's beliefs and opinions are wrong. Moreover, according to A, person B has persisted in a pattern of manipulation toward A, saying things to belittle, minimize, or ignore A. Person A feels incredibly victimized by person B and does not know how they can persevere at this church while person B remains. Person B, meanwhile, believes that person A is being disingenuous at best, dishonest at worst. Person B tells you that Person A has been going around different groups and individuals in the church spreading false information about Person B because the two simply don't agree or get along. Person A, according to Person B, is angry that they're not more influential in the church and they blame Person B for that. Person B says that Person A wants to steamroll over several policies and even people in the church in order to get their way, but thus far has been prevented. This is why, according to Person B, Person A has now accused Person B of being a spiritual abuser And B, feels very strongly that A, needs to be sharply rebuked for dishonest and misleading behavior. I would imagine that if you're reading this and have any pastoral DNA in you, you're sweating a bit. This is exactly the kind of scenario that church leaders dread with all their heart. And why is that? Part of the reason this scenario is so daunting is that you have to decide not only whom you believe, but what to call this. Is this an issue of spiritual abuse? Is this an issue of colliding personalities? Is it sin? Is it rivalry? Is it schoolyard name-calling? So much of how you proceed from this point depends on what kind of situation you think you are dealing with. All right, those intro three paragraphs made me go, yeah, I've been in that conversation at least four times. Oh, yeah. And that's exactly what I feel every time. It's like, what kind of thing is this that Mm -hmm. we're dealing with? And I think every pastor or ministry leader can relate to being in that moment of like, here's two people who are at odds with each other. They're saying different things. They, the, the facts are the same, but they're laying a different narrative or interpretation over those facts. They feel at odds with each other. What do I do? All right. So Samuel James wants to say, listen, um, when it comes to the topic of spiritual abuse in the church... In, one of the, in dealing with one of those situations,
2: I actually went and bought Chuck DeGroat's book. Yeah, to, you have it
0: sitting right here yeah. to help nice me yellow cover.
2: deal with one of those circumstances that we are working with here pastorally. And, it, and a few
0: chapters in that book were helpful to me. Yeah. In that situation, it was very clear of like, this person is a different kind of person than I'm used to dealing with. The, the category of narcissism was actually very helpful Yep, in that situation. However, Samuel James has a problem with Chuck DeGroat's book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. And his problem is this, basically, I'm going to read a quote, DeGroat seems to go out of his way to avoid calling spiritual abuse sin. He abandons the language of sin, repentance, and discipline in favor of therapeutic language like narcissism, vulnerability, and gaslighting. The problem is not that those words are fake or unreal. The problem is those words aren't enough. They leave spiritual abuse in the realm of the psychological, not the moral. He goes on for quite some time to treat some of the weaknesses he sees in the book. Later on in the review, he says, De DeGroat's use of shame as a powerful motivator of narcissistic and addictive behavior is not wrong. But there is a pro- profound difference between noting the role of shame in relational and spiritually harmful behavior and positing internalized shame as the root of it. Because the problem, according to de Grote, is disconnection of the self, the solution is not repentance, but reactualization. But because reactualization is an internal, not an external phenomenon, De Groot's therapeutic model for dealing with spiritual abuse requires that other people's experiences bear the primary responsibility for signaling narcissistic behavior. Consequently, the book casts a huge net over an amazingly diverse set of characteristics that are deemed narcissistic. Many of these are obviously correct, but many examples seem borderline at best. The essence of James's critique is that De Grote casts too broad a net for the category of narcissism in a way that actually makes it difficult to <laughs> discern in a given situation is this narcissism or something different? And and the sub the substance of James's critique is that I'm gonna read again a quote from the article. By abandoning the theological language of sin, idolatry, and failure to love, and by porting in their place the language of therapy culture, De Grote has left the reader with the near impossible task of resisting spiritual abuse with nothing more than impressions. The only way to follow De DeGroat's framework to its consistent conclusions would be to only endeavor center the felt experiences of some people and to rebuke and correct everyone else. Banished are any thoughts of helping even the suffering to view their experiences from the lens of scripture. Gone is the possibility of seeing both those in authority and those under authority as fallible people. Instead, the spiritual world of when narcissism comes to church is divided into black and white, good and bad people, the good people who are in touch with their inner selves, and the bad people who are not. This book makes a monumental decision, a decision to put the Bible's moral language to the side, to call a disorder what the Bible calls sin and to call self-actualization what the Bible calls repentance. I want to say a couple things. One, I think we all around this table would agree there really are spiritually abusive and narcissistic leaders out there. And I am aware that this book has actually been helpful. You were just saying this before we turned the mics on, Dusty, that this book has been helpful to some people we know who have been in systems like that and needed help to just be able to see what's going on here and how do I deal with it or call it something. So I know and, and you know people who have found this book helpful. So I am not intending to say in this podcast or by reading this critique that there's no such thing as narcissism or that there's no such thing as abusive narcissistic leaders. What I do think is an important question that James is asking is, is this book guilty of replacing biblical categories of sin and repentance with therapeutic ones? And that's why he titles the review, When the Therapeutic Replaces Sin, because that's the the case he's making is, I see what's happening here, but I'm not sure it's going to help us. Because we've moved away from language of sin, idolatry, selfishness, lack of love, repentance, and we've moved into categories of narcissism and so forth. And that move doesn't seem to help us actually name things and and move biblically toward repentance and healing.
1: I've not read this book, so I can't speak to how accurate. I mean, some may disagree with his representation of the book, neither here nor there. But the issue that he raises, I can say I certainly share his concerns because that is something I've, I've experienced as a pastor. And then even just in the ways that you hear people talk and things that you read, that in many ways, and, and I think to, to, to kind of affirm what we, what we agree on, what we affirm here, is that th- there's a way to respond to the therapeutic that kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater. And I don't think any of us around this table would do that. I mean, just for example, we have defended the Enneagram on this Whoa. podcast, and some would say that is <laughs> a product of the therapeutic language. And as far I, from little that I know about Chuck DeGroat, he's one that kind of has that category uh, for Enneagram and, and those kinds of things that help us understand ourselves better. So, so there are things that I think we we affirm about certain ways of talking about the human psyche and the ways that we're, our soul is made up that that we're we're we are in agreement with. So it's not easy just to say we dismiss all of that. However, and I think this is one of the things that I I've appreciated about my discipleship early on in ministry from Bob, you and Dusty and being at Coram Dale is recognizing that a lot of these tools are supplementary to biblical truth. And it seems like what's happening is those supplementary things are now being centered rather than being filtered through the lens of starting with the, you know, sin, truth, heart idols, you know, good biblical categories, and then using these to fill in some color. Now these have sort of been centered. We start there. We work from there. And so rather than being a helpful tool, they become the thing. And and I think that's the problem that I'm seeing is so much of the work is just being done at that level and um, not at the level of starting with scripture, starting with good biblical categories first.
0: Let me read what Chuck DeGroat himself said on Twitter yesterday as we're recording this. He wrote, Many have explored the dynamics of sin as attachment, concupiscence, passion, disordered desire. My book explores the ecclesial sin of our day using the language of narcissism. So don't miss the forest for the trees. We need therapeutic resources to tease out the sophisticated manipulation and abuse we see today. Otherwise, we run the risk of confessing general instead of concrete sins. Scripture itself models the use of cultural genres and structures see ancient near eastern treaties word for word bail psalms etc so we faithfully improvise today even using therapeutic language don't get distracted folks therapeutic language serves the church so i think he's trying to argue for kind of what you're saying chris yes that we should be using therapeutic language this is a good tool but i think you've nailed exactly what my question is which is is this therapeutic being used as a support or a secondary tool to scripture? Or is it being centered in a way that makes now the therapeutic, the lens through which we're viewing things? And that's, I think even the title of the book suggests that that's what he's doing. I mean, why mm-hmm. would you call it when narcissism comes to church, unless you're saying we're going to center the category of narcissism as a way for thinking about this problem? And I think that's exactly what Samuel James is asking is, is that what's happening? This seems like we're making a move here not just to say psychological categories can inform and help us, but to say, we need these categories at the center to understand what's going on here. Uh, As I mentioned, I went and grabbed this
2: book when I knew we were working with somebody who was narcissistic and it was actually a counselor that said, Hey, this sounds like a classic narcissistic person that you're working with. And I was like, Oh, I should go research that a little bit more. So that caused me to grab this book Um, and it, it, there were a few chapters that did prove helpful. One of the things that DeGroat does say in his book, which I, which was brand new idea to me was that narcissistic people do prey on the church because of the structure and system that can be in place with leadership and then with, you know, basically subordinates or members, you know, however you want to think about that structure. So narcissistic people will come to church to prey on it. Uh, even in their subconscious, they just do that. So that was... I think a little bit of the backdrop of the title but one of the things that I love about what James has to say is that the narcissistic person develops a false self and tends to use people in relationships to feed this identity but importantly de Grote does not connect narcissism to the biblical problem of inflated self regard he doesn't he doesn't necessarily call it evil and I, and I think that's the critique he doesn't go so far as to he mentions sin but then he, he inflates that to this—he almost replaces—well, this, this is a strong critique, but he almost replaces this uh, sin for narcissism. Yes. And I think that's what's being said, and I think that's an appropriate thing. I think he could he could talk more about manipulation. He could talk about evil. And I do think because we live in such a high therapeutic culture— we have to be careful to not assume a baseline of biblical foundation, which I think is what de Grote does in the book. I think he assumes a lot yeah about who's already at church who's um, who's coming to church, and who these people are praying on
0: so chris, you said you've you said a minute ago, you've seen this happen or you've seen mm-hmm, this you, mm-hmm. you've, you've seen exactly what Samuel James is yeah, talking about yeah. say more about that
1: so what I've observed and and it's different different situations both um in pastoral ministry and just reading things online. And so obviously stuff online, you don't know as many details, but what, what I've observed happening in more personal experience is one that there's this immediate jump to story trauma um, for formation. And and some, again, some of those things are helpful. Some of those things are really helpful, but what I don't see is talking about idol idolatry. Um, I don't, I don't talk about, Hey, how is our heart rebellious? How are, how is there a sense of uh, personal autonomy uh, that you know wants to buck against certain authority? And and when you immediately and this is again what I'm saying it's it's not that those things are bad categories it's the immediate jump to them it's like that's our first move and what what ends up happening is that when you start talking about people's trauma and story that just changes the nature of the conversation. And it in some ways even shuts down certain questions of, hey, where do I have personal responsibility? Where do I have hard idolatry? Where do I have sin and rebellion here? And and it just, as a pastor, there are times I've found where it's like, I, I know that that's where we have to go. But, but the way that these conversations have gotten framed, it's like, it's just sitting there and no one wants to touch it. And you actually kind of walled it off. And I'm going, we're only going to get so far. Um, this conversation is only going to be so helpful. And, and again, I want to be clear. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Listener, I'm not Did saying you've already, already <laughs> caveated enough. I'm we like, hear you. Um, but, but when you, when you it's where, where are you starting from? What are, what are kind of the, the categories that are, that are most sort of laying the foundation for how you're working through uh, assessing a certain situation. And, and I, I think the other thing that, that I struggle with too, is um, and I saw this, this recently play out in a situation where people assumed they were being biblical. They assumed that they were, and this goes to your point too, Dusty, they assumed that they had a biblical framework, but all the language was more in, in this situation that I'm talking about here. It was, it was all more like, um, kind of just these general leadership categories or these general sort of approach to how do you resolve conflict and and my fear is is when we get into this more this specific topic and we're not using the Bible, we're not engaging scripture, we're not pivoting off scripture, we're not going to particular texts and, and, and seeking to to draw out the wisdom of the scriptures. It's the wisdom of the therapeutic, the wisdom of how do I unpack a person's story? It's the wisdom of how do I deal with trauma you know, trauma informed kind of counseling type stuff.
0: So let me tell you what it what it closes off, because I've seen this happen. I interact with dozens of pastors across the country. I don't know of a single pastor that hasn't been accused of spiritual abuse. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, So I'm just saying like, there are really spiritual abusers out there, but I'm pretty sure not 100% of the people (laughs) I know are spiritually abusive. But here's what happens. And I want to name this because I think Christians have to deal with the fact that there is a category here, but we are drawing the category too large. What I've seen happen is when when I can frame it in terms of you have harmed me. And by the way, most of these situations are simple categories of like conflict, disagreement, you confronted my sin, I didn't like how you did it, or you know you weren't gentle toward me. There, there's just simple like, okay, this happens in a marriage, it happens in friendships, it's, it's normal conflict kinds of stuff. But you're a person of power, you're my pastor, Chris. You've been spiritually abusive toward me. And when I, in, in an attempt to help, Enter into situations and say, hey, okay, so let's sit down and have a conversation with that. Are you willing to just go and sort that out? The answer that's been given is no, I'm not doing that because that would be unsafe because you're an abusive person and yeah. it would be unsafe for me to enter in and try to resolve this. And so the, the language of safety or the perhaps this, the, you know, a trauma informed sort of background keeps me from actually doing what the Bible in Matthew 18 tells me I need to do. So if the fact that you're a leader means I can't actually reconcile with you because because you're in a position of power, I don't know how we can actually practice biblical community. And exactly. again, that's not to minimize yeah. certain situations where it's like, yep, we need another voice yeah, and another yeah, yeah, set yeah. of eyes in here because this person is dysfunctional. But by and large, that's not what I'm seeing. And so my concern with this book that I think Sam James is trying to name is in a very Counseling-informed situation with someone who's a very wise, skillful person who works with leaders, I, I trust this category all day long. I think probably Chuck DeGroat is wise and good in, in diagnosing narcissism among leaders and in helping parts of this that the church needs to do better. I think when you put a book out there into the world and give everybody the category of, if there's a leader in your life who has you know spoken harshly to you, they're probably a narcissist. I think what that creates is a whole set of expectations and assumptions that people can import because we live in a therapeutic culture, where there's already an aversion to talking about sin, hard idolatry, repentance, ownership, responsibility. That now um, I don't have to. I, I can avoid my biblical responsibility, and and cloak my unwillingness to pursue reconciliation as Jesus commands me to. I can cloak my unwillingness to do that in therapeutic language, and I think that's, you know, when you what you're yeah, talking yeah. about is even in a pastoral conversation, right? Trying to get somebody to move beyond, "Hey, this was hurtful to me," or I, "I I received this in a certain way." To, okay, but is there a responsibility that you need to take there? If that question is closed off in the first place, it really precludes the kind of community and the kind of gospel change that the scriptures call us. Yeah,
1: and, and it also. The focus becomes, and, and and I agree, speak the truth in love. There's a way that you eat, people should experience as speaking the truth that is helpful. But you can also, it can get so focused on the delivery, which is such a subjective thing. Like you could come at me strongly and it, it not bother me at all. Another person, you're like, whoa, 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 that's abusive. It's like, well, objectively, was that abusive or not? And so we get, get hung up in this very subjective experience. And then what gets bypassed is the actual issue at hand. And I've seen that happen too, where you're, you're like, "Why are we talking about delivery here? That that's not really even the issue. The issue is something far deeper." And and so we just spin our wheels. And it also, the, the, which when you were talking about it, also reminded me of the I wasn't on that the episode, but when you guys talked about has counseling replaced community? And this I think in many ways is a byproduct of that because it's easier to deal with a trained professional than the messiness of community. And when you're so concerned about safety, if safety is the absolute value, then of course you're going to outsource all of this because community, I mean, there's, there's a sense in which community should be safe, but in a lot of ways it's not. And so if if we have so elevated the therapeutic and safety becomes the ultimate, then exactly what you're right. We're, we're, we're not going to be in Christian community as Christ commanded us. We're not going to be working to point places of reconciliation and reestablishing trust I mean, I don't know, some, some of my best relationships are people who have seriously ticked me off at some point. And the reconciliation is what deepened the relationship. We're, we're gonna completely miss out on all of that if we're so consumed with these some of these categories or we center, I should say, we center these categories.
2: I wanna say a couple of things. One is I don't think it's bad for somebody to want to feel safe in a relationship or to, to feel absolutely safe. And I also Agreed. think to your point there about like, you know, some of your best relationships are people who have ticked you off. That's because there's been a commitment to the relationship and to rebuilding trust, which does mean there's an establishment in you relationally to pursue that kind of trust. And not everybody has that. Everybody has a different type of Mm -hmm. threshold and fragility based on, you know, stuff that the therapeutic world has taught us stuff about story, stuff about wounds, all that stuff. So that has, that, that is, that does need to be noted that, everybody does have a certain regard so we we can't just have a black and white r- approach to like well we just got to duke this out tone doesn't matter because this is what Jesus calls us to what i'm trying to say there is um that is important we got to we got to do what Jesus commands us to do but we also have to give deference to like what we're dealing with the fragility of it or the strength of it the subjectivity of the yeah yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, yeah the subjectivity yeah, yeah. of the relationship that's a better way to say it yeah and um, getting back to, to Grote's work here and the critiques of it, these articles that we've read, I think one of the things that gets made so simple is that we, he says something like, you know, sin isn't, basically he gives us the impression that sin is not enough. Yeah, right. And I just want to say sin is not easy. Repentance is not easy. So that is a category I'm unwilling to get rid of just biblically. Uh, sin, dealing with sin and dealing with repentance appropriately and people, walking people into repentance appropriately is not an easy process. So we don't necessarily need to replace that with the therapeutic. We need help from the therapeutic along the way.
0: Yeah. Let me read. I was dialoguing with a really wise and thoughtful friend about this um, book review. He had read both the book and the book review. I was dialoguing with him about you know his thoughts on this. And I'm, I'm not going to out my friend because I told him, you need to write on this because this is a really wise insight, but I'm going to read what he sent me because I think it does, I think, name something you just said, Dusty. He writes, my generous read of DeGroote's response would be this, therapeutic categories help name specific sins and sin patterns and see it more accurately. This is similar to the argument that the Enneagram, Enneagram helps us see specific sin patterns. There is a pattern in church history of using non-biblical language to describe sin so we can do the same with the therapeutic. He's saying, that's, I think, a generous read of what Chuck DeGroat is saying. Uh, He says, my response would be, Scripture also has specific categories. And if I accept DeGroat's premise, the onus is now on the one wanting to use extra-biblical language to show that he's mastered the biblical language And that this extra biblical language is conceptually consistent. I don't think DeGroat has done this. Therapeutic language is technical language developed through a trained discipline. You need specialty training to use it well. Biblical language is a different kind of language. It's common, ordinary, generally available, requires no technical training. It's also our authoritative language as Christians. You need discipleship to use it well but you don't need specialty or technical training. We can all appeal to the Bible as our common authority. Therefore, I tend to be hesitant about a scholar using technical language, which few are trained to use well, instead of biblical language because it shifts the authority to him and his training in psychology, or to say it differently. I'd be cautious with someone saying, this therapeutic language is totally consistent with the Bible's language, unless... He shows me how by explaining the biblical terms and the psychological terms and how they are related. If, they doesn't, if he doesn't do that, we're left with an authority shift. The Grotz claim may be true that narcissism describes a range of biblical sins and helps me understand them. But the question is, has he demonstrated that in his book? That's the question I think James yeah,
1: is asking. That's good.
0: And that's I, really well, good. It's what yeah. you were saying about the, the shifting of language, right? Or in recentering of categories. So, yeah. I think Chuck's doing really important work and I don't think any of us would would want to yeah. dismiss the work that needs to be done here. I think the question is are are we replacing or are, are we is the language of narcissism the same thing or does it substitute well and help us name more specifically a category of sins that scripture addresses and if so there's more work that needs to be done here to prove that that's the case. And in the absence of that the critique that I think Samuel James is raising is a really important critique because it does recenter the language and shift the conversation away from repentance, sin, idolatry into categories that are more therapeutic and that tend to center someone's subjective experience of a person rather than perhaps the more objective categories.
1: And that that quote, there's a couple of thoughts that will go through my head as you're reading a quote from your friend. One the technical side of things can't be discounted because narcissism traditionally has been used, and in, 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 at least in the modern, traditional modern, like a pathology. Right. And now it it seems as if it's kind of similar to abuse, where we've we've expanded its usage to the point of, hey, when I say narcissist, I'm the most most people are going to think, oh, that's a patholo- a dangerous pathology. Yeah. But if you're going to use that to describe certain individual behavior that's narcissistic behavior like the jump you just made in the gap that to me that just you're throwing like gas on something that just i, I don't know how helpful that is mm. so i think just even the, the the struggle with accurately using certain technical language and the way that that has shifted um i think poses some challenge but the other thing that i was thinking of yeah the biblical language scripture's a language for sin is both incredibly blunt, and soft, often more blunt than even we will be. But there's also a generosity to Scripture, and I don't think there's this the generosity in therapeutic language. Mm. There, there's not as much room for, I, and it's it's this weird thing because you think of the therapeutic as I'm trying to help people, but the therapeutic is also a place where I don't see a lot of grace, a lot of space for for at least the kind of biblical grace. And so I know that that sounds like a very strong overstatement, but and and I'm trying to just tease out this thought, but it it just feels to me that if you compare biblical language and biblical categories with sin, there is a bluntness, there is a directness, but there's also a way that it speaks to us that leaves us a ton of just space for the grace of God to come and meet us in that, where therapeutic language, when not applied well, creates, I think, these traps. And so that's a
0: half-baked thought, No, no, I don't think, I I don't know that it's half-baked because the analogy I want to use to go back to a conversation that Dusty was having earlier, I think in my 17 years of pastoral ministry, I've met maybe three real narcissists, like people that would be diagnosably like, yeah, this in a a psychiatric Mm -hmm. evaluation, this person would be diagnosed a narcissist, right? That's not very much, I mean, I've interacted with hundreds, thousands of people, three that I could say, these these three are probably on this category on the DSM. Suddenly though, I've heard a lot of people use the language of narcissism to describe this person's kind of a jerk or my dad did, you know, like all these people in my life kind of have these narcissistic tendencies. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's helpful for the same, for the reasons you're saying one, because it tends to categorize people. And if you are a narcissist or have narcissistic tendencies, you're probably dangerous and I shouldn't relate to you. So instead of moving towards you, I tend to back up from you. But also secondly, it's not it tends to be less generous than saying, Chris, sometimes you can be very self-willed. You know, like, like yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of biblical words here that I think are more gracious in an invitation to repentance and transformation rather than a word that seems to sort of at least give the impression that you're putting me into a category that feels uh pathological.
1: Yeah, yeah. There it is. That's that's what I was trying to say.
0: As you guys were talking, I was thinking about
2: um I've also had to rebuke a couple of people along the way in ministry, a few people maybe, but I don't feel like I rebuke every day. (laughs) I don't rebuke every week. I don't rebuke every month, you know, and it's similar to that. You know, I don't think Mm -hmm. everybody's a narcissist all of a sudden. Um, I don't feel like everybody needs to be rebuked every day, you know? So I think that gets, rebuke should be reserved. I would like narcissism to be a category we could use, but reserve it Mm -hmm. when we need to. Yeah, that's good. And, and so it seems similar to that. So I think one of the disservices that we do have currently with this book and just the thought out there, and I'm with you, Bob, I think it is helpful. We do need somebody writing about this stuff and helping us along the way, but we can't all of a sudden be narcissist, you know, because it just, it allows me, if I, if I feel like you're a narcissist, now I get to be in charge of that. Right. And I don't have to move. I don't have to work this out. I don't have to beautify the community with
0: with conflict resolution. In some sense, it centers the subjective. Yeah. If I feel you're a narcissist, that's kind of enough as a starting and point. And I can hit eject now. And I've seen that happen in real relationships.
2: Yeah. And then your hands are tied, especially as a leader, your hands are tied. Because now if I try to pursue that, now I'm just compounding the
0: problem. Right. I've seen uh, marriages where it's like, you know... Someone starts reading on narcissism and decides their spouse is a narcissist, and then it's like, I can hit eject. I'm like, Well, I actually I think the Bible calls us to like sort through this. You know, like we, we don't just get to throw a label on it and decide to go our separate ways. We have to move into repentance, humility, understanding, faith, grace, kindness, working on it. I think this is, you know, the, the basic work the church is called to do. And um, the the question Again, this this podcast is less of a critique of De Grote's book and more of a conversation about Samuel James's review, which I think is raising an important question of, are we centering therapeutic language in a way that reduces our ability to talk about sin meaningfully? And my friend's observation that the Bible's language is common language, I think it's helpful because in your observation, Chris, that it's also grace-filled language. And so it actually gives me a wide range of things. To your point, Dusty, we still need psychological categories i think they're helpful but are we in a world where people are less and less biblically literate and more mm. and more yeah. therapy literate are we moving in a direction here that actually reduces our capacity to use biblical language to talk about things rather than increasing our biblical capacity yeah well listeners you can go read the review yourself at Near orthodoxy uh, the title is When the Therapeutic Replaces Sin. And I hope that this podcast helps you enter in in a more meaningful way to some of the critiques that are there and some of the questions I think we should be asking. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.